0: So, will you pray with me as we pray through this passage together? For this reason, I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his Spirit and in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory and in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Uh, so this is 1 Corinthians thirteen four through 8. Love is patient, love is kind. It does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It is not, it keeps no records of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails.
1: It is so great to see everybody's faces and uh, expressions of uh, worship and joy. Let's pray together as we come to the scriptures. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your Hesed love that makes life go around, that stirs the heart, that builds communities, that helps us reach out of the box uh, and build a home in Mexico. Um, we just thank you and we pray that you would increase our knowledge of the depth of your love, that it would possess us and seize us and take us places we never thought we would go and do things we never dreamed of doing. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this morning we are in the third chapter of the book of Ruth, which is this cameo of the Garden of Eden in the terrible time of the Judges. And the theme this morning is seeking security. How do we live in such a way that will provide us a secure future? Well, the answers my sisters and I grew up with was, work hard, but especially get a good education. And there is great wisdom in that statement, and one appreciates it all the more when we hear examples of parents who grew up in poverty and gave everything, sacrificed everything, so that their children could get an education. Many in this church came to America for just that purpose, so that they could get an education, and it's opened up doors of opportunities your parents never had, whether you were a man or a woman. Now in the ancient patriarchal culture, however, that was not the case. In that world, a woman's only viable option for security was what Naomi prayed for Orpah and Ruth while they were en route to Bethlehem, that they would find rest, security, in the home of another husband. But in our text, how can that come about for a barren widow in a foreign land with no man to speak for her, no dowry, no social connections, Ruth brings nothing to the table. Well, the answer is found in Chesed. And Chesed is manifest in the determination of Naomi, the daring of Ruth, and the uprightness of Boaz, who risk themselves to serve the interests of others, and that, in turn, opens the door to a secure future that outlasts time. Think of that. What they do opens up a future for all generations for all time. And that's the Hebrew word hesed. I put shagal up there but they missed the Hebrew font but don't worry about it. Because I see him, that's him and his wife. And uh, this is what Boaz is doing with Ruth. He's elevating her in this text five times my daughter to exact equality with him. Well, our text, uh, as we come into chapter three, with regard to form and structure, chapters two and three are nearly identical. In chapter two, there was an exchange between Ruth and Naomi. Then Ruth goes to the field and meets Boaz. Boaz inquires as to Ruth's identity. And then Boaz asks Ruth to stay, deems her worthy, gives her food and protection. And then Ruth reports back to Naomi and receives counsel. Now if you look at chapter three, it's almost identical except for two minor things. While the structure is similar, um, the setting and the context in which the encounter takes place between Ruth and Boaz are quite different and they relate to each other differently. In chapter two when they meet in the barley field in full view of the public, We have Boaz playing the role of the magnanimous maitre d' and Ruth the humble and appropriate guest. In chapter three, by contrast, they meet in a private place under the cover of night, and that setting is significant for how one acts in private with no one watching is a litmus test of one's true character. The second difference in that chapter three is that it opens with Naomi taking the initiative that she lacked in chapter two. We turn to verse one. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law said to her, my daughter, should I not seek rest for you that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative with whose young women you were? See, he's winnowing in the field tonight at the threshing floor. So being reassured that God has not forgotten her, Naomi is re-emerging out of her paralysis and despondency and she's getting back to her former self as a proactive and affectionate mother who places the needs of her daughter-in-law above her own. And through Ruth's diligent work and Boaz's uncommon generosity during the three months of the barley harvest has kept them afloat but Ruth's ultimate future is still unsecure. With no man to speak for Ruth, Naomi takes the responsibility to be Ruth's matchmaker, and she sees Boaz as the perfect choice, and tonight at the threshing floor, the perfect time and place to execute her plan. She says, verse three, wash therefore and anoint yourself, put on your cloak, and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he is finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies, then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And Ruth replied, all that you say I will do. Now if you look at the structure of the text, it has a, a very chiastic structure, and it is framed with Boaz's work. First, he's winnowing in the barley, and at the end of the scene, he will tell Ruth what to do. And then the, there's four imperatives, should be four, not three there, um, that are followed by, and so Naomi instructs Ruth to prepare herself by bathing, anointing herself with perfumed oil, putting on her best garments. And her appearance will signal to Boaz that she's breaking out of her identity as a widow and ending her time of mourning, making herself eligible for marriage. And the plan depends upon Ruth having more knowledge than Boaz, who is literally and figuratively in the dark, as most males are. But once the scenario turns to the second phase, Naomi assumes that Boaz will be the one with the knowledge and he'll tell Ruth what to do next. Now Naomi's plan may be clever, but it is risky and dangerous. Naomi is sending an unmarried Moabite woman out in the dead of night to go down secretly to the threshing floor, a place where men harvesters have been celebrating with plenty of alcohol and perhaps prostitutes. Ruth is then to lie down next to a perhaps drunken man to uncover him in some way and then wait to see what he tells you to do. The scene is laced with sexually loaded terms which I won't go into. However, it's important for us to be aware how sexually charged and dangerous this situation is in order to grasp the courageous beauty and purity of their responses. You'll never see this scene in a Hollywood movie but it'd be great if they did it. Carol and Curtis James suggests that the contrast makes this one of the most powerful gospel encounters between two people in all of scripture. Now in Naomi's, de- Naomi's defense, she is aware of the risks, but in her mind, they are worth taking if they give her daughter a secure future. The problem at hand is that there's no mail to negotiate a match, nor is there any way for Ruth to carry on such a conversation in public. And there's no cell phones, there's no emails. But Ruth has figured out the perfect time and place for a private conversation that will not tarnish their reputation if the scheme fails. She knows where Boaz will be that evening, where he, what he'll be doing when his mood will be most favorable, and what will be the best manner and most propitious moment to approach him. This is a once in a lifetime opportunity and Naomi seizes it. This whole chapter is about the blessing of God's grace and human initiative and how important human initiative is to bring in the kingdom of God. You'll see it all through this text. In any case, she depends on the noble character of both Ruth and Boaz to do the right thing. Ruth's response, all that you say I will do, Walkie notes that it's similar to Mary's to the angel of the Lord, I am the Lord's servant, may it be to me as you have said. Verse six, so she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her, And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. Now the suspense in this scene would make your hair stand up if you saw it on screen. Ruth, perfumed and dressed to the nines, makes her way to the threshing floor under the cover of night. She finds a spot a short distance away where she can view Boaz as he finishes eating and drinking and lies down to sleep. Then she has to wait. Minutes seem like hours in the stillness of the night, and finally she gathers her courage. She tiptoes over the fallen husks of grain toward the spot where Boaz is sleeping. She bends down, uncovers his feet, hoping not to wake him. Then she lies down and must wait to see what will happen next. How much did she uncover and what what will Boaz do with this unsuspected opportunity? The tension mounts. Verse eight. At midnight, the man trembled and twisted around and behold, ah, a woman's lying at his feet. The narrator takes you right there from Boaz's point of view. Well, the turning point of this crucial scene is the threshing floor comes in the middle of the night. So I would title this scene, Terrified by a Nightmare, Waking Up to a Dream. The ESV actually translated that uh, he was startled and turned, but that doesn't capture the intensity of Boaz's fright. The term is used of terror and quaking when you've seen the presence of God or some force. Linnefel comments, much is unclear, but what we can say is that Boaz during the day, a wealthy landowner in control of his immediate world, is at night transformed into a man who shudders and is seized by forces beyond his control. What will Boaz do? Well, Anyone familiar with the backdrop of Israel's story in the book of Judges would know exactly how a man will react when he awakes in the middle of the night and discovers a young woman lying at his feet. But not Boaz. He said, who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. This is the second of three times that the question of Ruth's identity is posed in the course of this story. The first time Boaz saw the young foreigner in the field, he asked, to whom does this worker girl belong? At that time, he viewed her as someone else's property with no identity of her own. But now on the threshing floor, he asked Ruth to name her own identity. And Ruth makes a subtle but important change in the way she characterized her relationship with Boaz. Earlier, she called herself a shifa, a female slave without the prospect of marriage. Now she calls herself an amma, a household servant of elevated standing with the prospect of marriage. And regardless of their difference in social status, Ruth doesn't hesitate to give Boaz instruction. Naomi said, wait, he'll tell you what to do. But Ruth doesn't wait, she tells him what to do. And elsewhere in the Bible, the image of man spreading his wing over a woman connotes the social and economic protection of marriage. And that is close, clearly what Ruth is asking. Boaz earlier used the metaphor of wings when he commended her that you sought refuge under the wings of the Lord. But now she says, you act on God's behalf to make that prayer a reality. You're the instrument of your own prayer. She explains her bold request. You are a redeemer. So the word is a participle form of the verb meaning to act as next of kin in the sense of redeem. And the term is a legal one, but it's a highly charged socially because it focuses on the preservation of family and community. Verse 10. Boaz said, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness, this last Hesed, greater than the first in that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. Boaz is immediately appreciative of what Ruth has done. He addresses her affectionately as my daughter, which is used five times in this text. And he invokes the Lord's blessing upon her because this last instance of loyalty is greater than the first. So we ask the question, in what sense is looking to Boaz for marriage rather than some young man better? I'm sure Boaz thought it was better from him being an old guy. But I'm gonna quote Catherine Sankenfield. She hits the nail on the head. To be loyal to her family, Ruth not only journeys to a foreign land, but once there she seeks marriage not for love or money, but in a way to ensure Naomi's security, not just her own. Thus, it is an act of loyalty greater because it provides for long-range security beyond the short-term solution of gleaning, and greater because it clarifies the depths of Ruth's commitments to the promises she made to Naomi, since the marriage will make permanent Ruth's bond to Naomi's place and people." Quite a commitment. Now Boaz sensitively calms her fears, recognizing how great a risk Ruth took in approaching him in the night and making her proposal. She could easily have taken advantage of and compromised her integrity. And then the male could have broadcast his version of the story to the village, as often men with power do. And then he says, and now my daughter, do not fear, all that you say I will do, for you, for all my fellow townsmen know that you are a, a worthy woman, or a woman of valor. Now if you want to go to sleep later, this is where you want to stay awake, this is the heart of the text, <laughs> memorize it. This is amazing. Instead of any kind of ridicule he gives his consent, all that you say I will do, those are the exact same words she said to Naomi. Ellen Davis is a brilliant scholar. She wrote, the echo aptly sums up the relational dynamics of this book. It is a statement of complete trust and deference. Each tough, experienced individual entrusting the uncertain future into the hands of a now beloved other, each forfeiting the impoverished security of going it alone, each yielding to the other's wisdom and genuine need. And I think this text takes the idea of mutual submission to just a new levels. Submission is never out of weakness. In marriages, we're to have mutual submission. It doesn't mean I'm the boss until Emily doesn't like it. It means there are times the other person has the wisdom and you need them and you say all that you say I will do. And other times you say it the other way. All that you say I will do. It says this is beautiful trinity of love, of mutual submission and respect. So ladies, you don't need permission to take initiative and to lead at times, okay? You don't need permission. And I love it in the church. I mean, right now, as we are such a co-ed place, I watch women's gifts, and you, don't, and you just recognize it and say, go for it. And use your gifts. And I don't have a gift of leadership. I'm just an idealist and a teacher, but I'm telling you, I have some great women colleagues who put wheels to things that I could never do. And I have a wife who's a leader, at least to me. And it's just wonderful. It's not a competition of power, it's not who's in charge. It's just this wonderful community of mutual submission. Now if that were not enough, look what he does next. He further elevates her by unveiling her approval ratings among the academy. (laughs) He calls my fellow townsman, but that's literally translated am um, at the gate of my people. And Bruce Walkie says that means the esteemed citizens of Bethlehem, of the academy. And they're going to give Ruth the academy award. And the award is on a plaque. It says, Ruth, a daughter of Yahweh, and Ashet Ash- Ash- Ha'il, Ashet Ha'il, a woman worthy. That's the exact same title given to Boaz at the beginning of the book. He was an ish man, a warrior of strength. He gives her the same title. He's now elevated her to the same position as him in the community and he says, that's what the academy thinks of you. Whoa. That's recognition. Recognition is a powerful gift to people because most of us don't know who we are or the impact we have. And when someone comes along and says, you're incredible. No one like you. It's the best gift you can give them. And you know what else? That word, eshet aiel, happens at the very end of the book of Proverbs about the worthy Israelite woman who takes the initiative outside the home and works to provide for her family in remarkable ways. And it's an acrostic from A to Z. That's Proverbs. The next book in the Hebrew Bible is the book of Ruth. So the Academy is saying the Academy Award first goes, who demonstrates this is Ruth. And she's not married and she doesn't have children, she's single barren widow. Listen to these statements about her from Proverbs. She does good, not harm. She works with willing hands. She rises while it's night, provides food for her household. She dresses herself with strength, makes her arms strong. She reaches out her hands to the needy. Strength and dignity are her clothing. Can't see here. Okay. And there's the best one. The teaching of Hesed, loyal love, is on her tongue. And she doesn't eat the bread of idleness. I don't think Ruth ever rested. And she is a woman who fears the Lord. And then comes the capstone. Let her works praise her where in the city gates. That's just what Boaz said about her. You're known in the city gates. So Ruth thus serves to balance and correct any cultural assumption that only married women are worthy. Okay? So single daughters rejoice, widows rejoice. Here is worthy. I think that's great news. Okay, verse 12. I'd like to end the sermon there, but I have to keep going. I'm on TV, so what are you going to (laughs) do? I'm sure they're going to cut me out. Anyway, live stream. And now it's true that I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight and in the morning, if he will redeem you, good. Let him do it. But if he's not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until morning. Well, as much as Boaz respects Ruth, and as much as he would like to marry her, there's a slight problem. There is a nearer kinsman redeemer than Boaz, and it is his responsibility under God to redeem the family property. So Boaz will not usurp another man's right to act responsibly. Having said that, he's not oblivious to the implications of his decision for Ruth and he assures her that he will settle the matter in the morning and if she becomes available to him, he seals his commitment with an oath before God as the Lord lives. Now when Boaz instructs Ruth to remain for the night and lie down until morning, he guards against any sexual misinterpretation He avoids the word shakah, preferring to speak of lodging or spending the night. That's the same word Ruth used when she committed herself to lodge wherever Naomi would lodge. But then the question is, why remain at all? It's a little risky. But it might be that Boaz just wants her near at hand for what may be his last opportunity to have the intimate pleasure of her company. So Carolyn Curtis called this little scene, Sleepless in Bethlehem. <laughs> Verse 14, so they, she lay at his feet until morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And he thought, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, bring the garment you are wearing and hold it out. And so she held it and he measured out six measures of barley, put it on her. Then she went into the city. The Hebrew text has he, but they both went home. So the narrative amplifies Ruth's obedience to Boaz's instruction to lie down until morning, and she did so at his feet, and thus the mystery of the balance between sexual attraction and upright behavior is brought full circle. And then it's interesting, it seems a little confusing that In what follows, Boaz speaks of Ruth rather than directly to her. Yet Ruth seems to have arisen in response to Boaz's unspoken thought. And perhaps the narrator is suggesting that the pair is already learning to communicate and to give heed to each other with the subtlety and mutual respect that can make a home truly a resting place. You know, in your one flesh, sometimes you don't have to communicate. You just do. And it's a beautiful thing. And as a token that there's going to be a redeemer, Boaz provides Ruth with a substantial gift of barley from the just winnowed pile of grain. Boaz himself loads the grain-filled garment onto Ruth's back. Perhaps because of its weight or perhaps as a tester of tenderness since it is the closest to physical contact between the two that the narrator makes explicit. In the pre-dawn hours, Ruth walks home with a backpack of barley slung over her back and makes her way to the low-lined fields up the steep hill toward Bethlehem. Verse 16, and when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, who are you, my daughter? Then she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, these six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said to me, you must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. Now, this is amazing. When Ruth arrives home, Naomi can't wait to find out. I'm sure Naomi didn't sleep at all that night, wondering, did she get lost? Was she abused? Is she, whatever, and so she says, who are you? What is your identity? A scorned woman, a slave girl, or a wife? And instead of answering her question directly, Ruth tells Naomi all that the man had done for her. And what is central to that report is not Boaz's agreement or disagreement to marry. It's what Boaz did for Naomi. Behind Boaz's caring words, you must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law, she heard God's voice answering her bitter complaint from chapter one. I went away full, I came back empty, and I'm bitter. And sometimes you hear God speak that way through other people. And when she did, her emptiness evaporated like dew on hot pavement. Naomi will have a son-in-law who cares as much for her as he does Ruth. And I think it was very hesed like of Ruth to make sure she knew how much Boaz did care for her, to make this, this is a triangle of Hesed love. It's a trinity. And then she answered Ruth, said, wait my daughter until you know the matter, how the matter will turn out for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. The matchmaker knows the man, Boaz will not rest, no obstacle will keep him from keeping his word. So the chapter ends, but I think it's great to conclude with a a verse from the Psalms. Did you know that the Psalms, there's 150 of them, in 46 of those Psalms, and in 120 verses, you'll find the word hesed. That tells you how much hesed is part of our prayers. So I'd like us to read this together or pray it together. Read it with me. I will rejoice and be glad in your steadfast love because you have seen my affliction, you have known the distress of my soul. It's a beautiful thing in these relationships, isn't it? Beautiful thing. You know, the choices made by Naomi and Ruth and Boaz, they're exemplary and they compel us constantly to renegotiate the complex moral decisions we have to make in a world where in this world, everyone is in some way threatened or compromised. So again, I'm quoting, where options are limited, people take advantage of whatever possibilities are available and they pray that God will see them through. Theirs of necessity is a theology of survival The story of Ruth need not and indeed should not be read as an endorsement of every aspect of its ending as a desire for God for all times and place. I'm never sending my daughter to the threshing floor, okay? But in this case, it was survival. This rather is a story of women making a way out of no way. Enabling by God behind the scenes and by other faithful people, epitomized by Boaz. And today, this story of Hesed, as I've said weeks before, is being acted out in Ukraine and Romania. And I wanted to end the text um, letting you hear from Violetta Altman and the joy she has had being consumed with Hesed love with all her friends. And so she wrote this week. After dropping the kids to school, we went shopping and served breakfast to the refugees. Conrad made a large frying pan of scrambled eggs that was quickly eaten. It was strangely quiet for a full house of people. These first weeks there were hundreds of deaf-mute families were passing through the city. Another time I cooked goulash soup and a band of mothers enjoyed it. And last time, we served lunch to a busload of people who were getting ready to travel outside the country right after lunch. Elbow to elbow, we worked with another young mom. We served the soup, the rice, the schnitzel, all while making 50 sandwiches for the road. It was an exhilarating rush. Working joyously, preparing packages of snacks, water, fruit, and setting the people on their way with a blessing and a hug. We couldn't communicate through words. They would come to us with Google Translate with tears in their eyes to express their gratitude. We may never see them again. But for this brief moment, we shared grace and we blessed each other in unexpected ways. We happened to look into their eyes. Be silent and yet be changed forever. And then Conrad held a little adorable baby while his mom ate. The baby's eyes would well up with tears. He didn't seem distressed anymore. He was a little restless at first, especially while his mom was trying to eat, holding the wiggly body. But as Conrad picked the baby up, he turned to see where his mother was and then relaxed feeling safe in Conrad's arms. You could tell he felt, if not heard, the vibration of Conrad's voice. We weren't sure if he was also deaf, as the entire group was deaf. The baby would look into Conrad's eyes, or lock eyes with me, and remain focused for a long time. I'd smile at him, and tears would well up in our eyes. The interaction made us tearful, too. In 10 years, the baby and his siblings may have a story to tell, and I pray it will be a story of healing that began early. As we pull up our sleeves, we see clearer what we can do and how we can help. The needs are sorted naturally. The people jump in to help as the requests are shared in various groups, and we are part of Join a community, donate, pray, and show up. A willing heart, a flexible mind, and a humble attitude, and a brave spirit can move mountains by faith. Amen.